I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. There it is, the famous open. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Get Back to the Beatles, hosted and produced by the Boston Podcast Network, heard wherever you hear your favorite podcasts, along with my famous co-host. He's the Beatles professor at Suffolk University for over 15 years. He's been teaching freshman students all about the Beatles. And uh, welcome, Mr. David Gallant. How are you, David? I'm fine, Chachi, if, if, if not a little bit tired from uh, shoveling the snow as uh, we are recording this episode today. We've been socked with a good old-fashioned uh, New England uh, winter storm. Yes. Yes, Exactly. Yes, we are on exactly. Zoom, but uh, we are on audio, but we're able to see each other to tape this interview. We have two special guests, and you've, been, you've heard David talking to both of them. And we thought we'd have them both on because they are both authors of two fantastic books that I think would be a great Christmas gift, a Hanukkah gift, or a gift for yourself during this Christmas season. We have postcards from Liverpool, Beatles Moments and Memories, from author Mark Brickley, so we welcome Mark. And then we have a fantastic book called 30 Minutes in, in Memphis, A Beatles Story by Paul Ferrante. And I hope I said that correct, Paul, your last name. Fantastic. Uh, thank you very much. And I've met both of these gentlemen before because we did a little thing with Plastic EP, but it's great to uh, be able to have you both with us today as we are about a week away from Christmas. We wanted to get this interview out there so people would know that your books are available. And uh, let's start with Mark. Postcards from Liverpool. Thoroughly enjoyed your book. You touched on so many different things from interviews with Andy White and a question you got to ask Ringo and all kind, even the author of the song, How Do You Do It? So there's lots of nuggets within that book. Mark, is this your first book that you've ever written? It's, it is the first book. I, I was a music writer in Southern California for about 10 years. So I published lots of different articles and a lot of articles about the Beatles. And actually, one of the first kind of major articles I did was on the Beatles' first record. And I wanted to kind of contribute something new. This was in 2012, kind of the Beatles' written history. So I, I, I got an interview, as you say, with the great, you know, a drummer that my uh, played on English drummer that played on Love Me Do and Mr. White. And, you know, just one thing led to another and had all these great Beatles experiences, Chachi, and, and you know, traveled to England, kind of traced the Beatles' footsteps there and stepped inside Royal Albert Hall and sat right next to where the Queen, you know, her, the box, the Queen's box there. And it's a great experience. Everyone's got to do it. Been to the Rock and Roll, went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland and, and saw the great Beatles exhibit there. Also, you know, as you mentioned, you got to go to the Ringo's press conference. And so I wrote about, I read about that in the book and, and also saw Paul McCartney get his star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. And, you know, all these great experiences. I, I just, you know, all of a sudden I said, God, I got a book here. So, you know, the interviews, I, I found a guy named, who was an early Apple Records recording artist, lived only 25 miles from me in Ojai. And I, and I, I ran up there and asked, asked around and about an hour later, they said, oh, that's Jackie Lomax. Oh yeah, he's lived here for 25 years. And, and about two weeks later, I was sitting in his bungalow or, and with all his guitars and his tube amplifiers and Beatles memorabilia and Astrid Kirchner photographs on his walls. And, you know, he gave me a great interview and I included, included in the book. So yeah, it's, it's a smorgasbord of Beatles experiences, moments, memories, backstories, vignettes, 27 chapters, 200 pages. I just, you know, hope people we'll have a lot of fun with it because it was fun writing it and experiencing it to get there. Well, I certainly enjoyed it. We're going to have some questions for you. But Paul, you are an author of a bunch of books. Uh, you've been an author for a while and you have combined historical facts into nonfiction and I quite enjoyed it. What, what was that experience like uh, putting those two things together, facts and, and, and the rest? 
Well, as, as a longtime teacher, I just retired after 42 years, as a matter of fact. So, uh, and by the way, I, I love David's job. <laughs> it, yes. was, it was a job I'd love to have. But I've always felt that uh, the best way to teach history uh, to kids was to kind of slip it to them without them knowing. So my T.J. Jackson Mysteries series, which is a young adult series, brings this group of ghost hunters to different venues where by interacting with the ghost or the ghost's time period, they find out everything they need to know about either him, her, or the historical um, setting in, in which they lived. So there's five of those books with a sixth one on the way for the summer. But uh, somehow I managed to slip the Beatles into just about every one of them as one of the three main characters is a Beatles aficionado and always is always carrying on a, a running trivia contest with one of the other kids. And uh, so it's been really, really fun to, to get the Beatles in there. And I've even able, been able to uh, work in uh, the spirit of John Lennon in one of the books so far, which takes place in Bermuda. And we all know John's link with Bermuda in the, in the years uh, just before he died. So getting the Beatles in there has always been a lot of fun. And then after writing those books, writing the Fenway book, which David also uh, mentioned, I decided it was time to just do a straight on historical fiction Beatles book because I love the process. I love doing the research and uh, then trying to make it come to life and, and, and be something that will entertain as well. Well, thank you very much. I will correct myself. I said nonfiction earlier, but certainly it's fiction. And it's interesting that you do a book about Fenway because the professor and I had a guest on a while back who was a sports writer for the Boston Globe who always puts in Beatle references to all of his, uh, most of his reports. And so hearing you say how you just put in Beatle references here and there reminded me of the great Steve Morse, who's a a great writer, a sports writer for the Boston Globe. Yeah, one of my acquaintances is another guy who I'm sure you guys know up there, Lee Montville, and another mm -hmm. great Boston writer. And yeah, it's been fun. You know, baseball is one of my passions, but obviously the Beatles are as well. Well, the radio station I worked at back in the day was right behind Fenway Park during all those losing years where you could <laughs> actually walk in during seventh inning and grab a seat because they hardly ever sold out the games. Remember that, Professor, back in the day? You know, yeah. So. Yeah, no, and I, I, of course, Fenway is, I had been, not to get Paul too jealous, but, you know, Chachi, it was, it was last, it was fall of, fall of 2019, fall of 2018, I was able to leave, uh, my class ended at 5.45 in the evening, and so I have a, a budget from the university to work with freshmen and to, get them out and do some special opportunities and maybe feed them every once in a while. So we all had pizza in the classroom and then we walked from our university, which is right in the middle of Boston, down to the theater district and I was able to get them to see Ringo. So a Beatles class got to see a Beatle right after taking class. I also wow. managed to bring a few students, fewer, because the tickets were more expensive. And when I was teaching the, able to teach class in the summer, we did see Sir Paul at Fenway Park. I had seen him there a couple of times actually. So have seen the Beatle at Fenway. So, Paul, just as a, a point of clarification now, were you a uh, secondary school teacher or middle school? What age range? High school and middle school, pretty well evenly divided between the two. And what I was able to do in the middle school section was to incorporate the Beatles into my poetry unit every year because I was an English teacher. I was an English teacher. Oh, that's teacher. what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 my, that's my world as, as well. My, my undergrad and my, my master's, also from a Catholic university, Boston College, you were at Iona, is in, uh, is in English, and I did doctoral work at uh, University of Rhode Island in, in English. So that's sort of the, the element I'm coming from. And in fact, my Beatles class began as a unit in a uh, Brit Lit survey for, for a college requirement. And uh, part two, from romantic to the present era, so I would do a post-war, uh, British post-war youth culture and do a segment on the Beatles and one on punk and the sex pistols. So that's sort of the roots of the class. It comes from the, the area of literature, but also culture and, and historicizing it, which is what I think you're, you're doing with your fictions, you know, as well. I mean, they're, they're great sort of entryway for students to understand poetry and the use of language. But I think it's one of the things I love to go through with students and, you know, 
even from those days teaching Shakespeare, is that there are so many wonderful elements in the footnotes, right? And in your, in your research for your historical fictions, the footnotes are everything, you know, to bring that to life. So yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised that it's a, it's a natural sort of alliance from what you had been teaching to, to, to doing the work that you do. And I even sort of married into it. My, my wife is a, a professional translator as well as she does work in a high school as a teacher's aide. But her, her, her doctoral dissertation was a, a critical translation of a contemporary Norwegian novel by Lars Christensen. And then his novel is called Beatles. And it's basically, I don't know if, you're, if you're familiar with it, it has been translate, translated several different times and there's a film. And it's one of those coming of age stories where there are four characters and each of the characters identifies with a particular Beatle. So it talks about identifying with the Beatles, but also the cultural change in Scandinavia in the 60s and the 70s and how it follows them through. So it's a very sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a territory that I, I know pretty well. And it's, it's very, it's always interesting how the Beatles can be used to tell those types of stories. Um, whether it's a novel like that or that film that came out of Spain several years ago, Living is Easy with Eyes Closed, which I thought was fantastic, right? And the main character is a high school English teacher <laughs> who uses the Beatles to teach poetry and, and the English language to students. So uh, you could have starred in that film, Paul. <laughs> well, I only had a, a week every year to do it because, of course, they dictate to you what your curriculum is. But every year it was it was a joy. It was the highlight of the year. The kids would talk about it when they came back to visit me because basically I was at the same time I was telling them about my childhood because my childhood really and my Beatles memories start in 1963 when Kennedy shot so I kind of grew up with the Beatles right through those elementary and middle school years when I graduated from eighth grade the Beatles were breaking up so they were with me that whole time and I was able to tell the kids about the 60s about Vietnam about uh, the civil rights movement in the you know in the context with the Beatles in that context all the time doing the poetry listening to the songs uh, watching the videos and they were just so blown away especially especially by the whole Beatlemania thing and the newsreels, the footage of the girls, like, you know, fainting and everything like that. Uh, they, they would end the last class walking down the hallway singing I Am The Walrus, and that was the greatest thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, you're a first-generation Beatle fan. Mark, is that the same for you? It is. Of course, I saw it on my little black and white television on, on the street that I grew up on in, in Santa Barbara. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's great, Paul, that, that, that you're, you're, you're teaching to a new generation of both of you, David and, and, and Paul, because that's really, really important. And, you know, I was thinking about the first uh, Beatles Fest that I went to. I was in college, uh, actually down at, at UC Irvine. And uh, there was a, a, a Beatles Fest at a Hilton Hotel there. And uh, they, they had them regularly in California as well as on the East Coast. And I, I actually, I have a short chapter on my, on my book called Beatles Conclave. And I really think it's important, you know, it's really an important aspect of the Beatles is, you know, the Beatles community. And as all, all of us are part of that. And, and it, 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 it kind of propels not only the Beatles music, but, you know, kind of the, the, the era, the, 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 the vibe of the 60s and and um, I'm just so happy that you know there's I mean it's, it's just um, it's amazing how many people I've met since the book my book has come out and how much I've learned from other Beatles professors DJs Chachi and Plastic and you know Paul you know your book I mean that's it's just great I I, I I that's what I wanted to contribute to I just I I, I fell in love again with the Beatles. Uh, and and it, it's just been wonderful, a wonderful experience for me to, to write this book and, and to share what I've experienced with, you know, so many people out there. And, and thank you for asking that, Chachi. I am a first generation Beatle, Beatle guy. And, you know, uh, there's, there was so much more music in the 60s that I, like everybody else, experienced. And, and, uh, but I came back to the Beatles and I'm so glad that I did. Well, since we're all, for, well, the professor is not a first generation, but here's the magazine that I grabbed. You know what? I, I please, yeah, I'm always, I'm always battling with Chachi about this, you know, <laughs> that I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be blamed for not having been there on the scene. I was, I was in existence in this world. 
I was I was an infant in a playpen, and I had a cold, and my mom was watching me at the same time as she was watching As the World Turns when she was informed by Walter Cronkite that Kennedy had been shot. So I was just a few months old when the when the Beatles hit the airwaves in '64. But as I always tell Chachi, I was the hippest six-month-old kid on the block. So I did have older siblings. But I will tell you something that Mark brings up, and I know they mentioned it in the book, about that sense of a Beatle inheritance and how he sees a lot of young people at those. And, and Chachi, you and I have seen them at, at Beatle gatherings all around. And I saw a recent interview with James Corden. And, of course, his Carpool Karaoke episode with Paul McCartney is – not only the most popular, but the most downloaded segment of anything he's ever been associated with. And it's not all being viewed by people my age or anyone else on this panel. It's all being viewed by the young people who grew up as digital natives, as we say, right? So when they're accessing it, as, as Mark mentioned in his book, when they're accessing it on their own, not because their parents or grandparents told them, but they came to it themselves, then that's, well, that's why this sort of connective tissue still exists. And, you know, Chachi and I, maybe some of you have read the, the book Beatleness by Candy Leonard, and, and that focused on a lot of sort of, you know, uh, ethnographic research of first-generation Beatle fans. And I'm always asking Candy, I said, look, you need to do a follow-up on the second and third generation and why they sort of came to, to the Beatles. Use the same sociological research methods you use, and let's sort of keep it going now for, uh, for further volumes. Uh, but speaking of Candy Chachi, I noticed that uh, Paul above his shoulder there, I see Patty, uh, Patty Stenman's book there, yes. which is a great, that's also a great piece. Yes. So yeah, everyone's got their stuff friend. behind them. Well, yeah, I, very good. I heard the, uh, the interviews that you did with Patty. And what we did was we did an author exchange and uh, she read my book. I read her book and it was incredible how much, and she even said this, the protagonist of my novel, who is a 15-year-old girl in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1966, mirrors Patty's experience growing up in, in Philadelphia. Yeah, so I mean, she said it was incredible how much that girl and I had in common. And it was, and I felt so great about it, because first of all, she was my first female protagonist and sometimes it's hard to think like a girl if you're not one but the other thing was you know I was like am I getting this right is this what a girl would have done is this the way a girl would have felt so it, when she said she loved it and it reminded her of herself it kind of validated it for me and her book is wonderful it is a great book and I, I she's like as you as professor said she has been on the show before and my being a a Beatles fan, I'm going to just show off one of my items. I know that that Mark has met a Beatle. You met Pete Best. Yeah. Asked yes, Ringo a question. You were standing kind of close to Paul. Yeah. Uh, but I say, when I was a child, I saved the 1964 Newsweek magazine dated February 24th, 64. And then through my years in radio hosting a Beatles show, I, I managed to get Ringo and Paul to both autograph that for me. And so I, I, I just wanted to show you that as a first-generation Beatle fan. But, but Paul, your book, it, it, the storyline runs in an important period for the Beatles. I mean, that was a really give-and-take year for the Beatles in 1966. They could have broken up, you know, after Revolver, after the Manila situation, the, the Budokan situation, and you center your novel around the time of the Memphis concerts where a concert where, you know, a firecracker made them think one of them got shot and it centers around the social injustice, the KKK picketing. So I think there's a learning curve there for your students, whether it's the Beatles or that particular period in the United States. I, I wanted the book to have a message. And, you know, for me, 65 and 66 is kind of the sweet spot as far as what I like, as far as, listening to the Beatles, you know, Rubber Soul and Revolver are my favorite too. But that was, you know, historically it was just the perfect storm. You had that fateful tour, which kind of, you know, persuaded them to just, you know, drop touring from then on in. The music changed. The world was changing. They were starting to uh, come out and say what was on their mind and, and not play it safe anymore and kind of leave the mop top image behind 
And having lived through all that and being in a Catholic school the whole time where I had some of my Irish nuns, you know, telling me, you know, you see, you see that heathen, we, we knew he was no good. And when, when they came here, you know, mm. now look what he's gone and said. And, and so really this girl who lives in Memphis, who's a Baptist, pretty much has the same experience down there. And the themes, you know, there are themes of, you know, being true to yourself, standing up for yourself, the right to free speech, having compassion for other people and, and, and their point of view. So there was a lot of stuff I was able to, I think, bring out by the experience of this girl who, who always stayed true to her beloved Beatles. You know, well, Chelsea, you know oh, I, 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 I don't know whether, I mean, this is, this is obviously thinking outside of the particular context of the, of the book, but I'm thinking of other sort of historical fictions. I think, you know, I, I forget exactly who started it, but there was the movie Love Field about the day that Kennedy was shot. Um, and there are other sort of films like that. And I think Paul's book is kind of, is kind of ripe for, for an adaptation. You know, one person's journey through that hotbed of a time in the, well, I won't say pre-civil rights legislation South. It was immediately after the Civil Rights Acts. But as we know, it takes a long time for those things to work through and operationalize in society. Um, but it's really right for that for something a story like that to be told visually in terms of visual narrative in terms of in terms of film to you know this this novel in the right hands Paul I think it does have a great story to tell that way I you know especially since agree. in the wake of you know, I have no connections in Hollywood or anywhere else to any directors or anyone to option a screenplay so but I'll take her credit if it ever gets there. But especially in the wake of, I'm not going to say revisionist history, but in some ways in the wake of, of Ron Howard's effort and the testimonials of, of uh, a few of the voices there about the Beatles only not wanting to play to a segregated audience, I believe in Jacksonville, right at the Gator Bowl. Um, and that, I think that part of whatever they were advancing has not been built up enough. And probably that was their own doing to avoid that direct sort of you know, political message. But there is that moment, and I do spend quite a bit of time in class on the, on the bigger than Jesus controversy around this time. And we see the footage of the KKK on the nightly news outside of the Coliseum, where your novel, you know, the mo main moments are set. And uh, it is a very important central moment. You know, I call that period that you think of as the sweet spot, as the the great middle period, I, I call it, you know, it's kind of like that a high renaissance. And uh, we do spend quite a bit of time to look at not just the circumstances that led to maybe that crisis moment, but how a PR flap or disaster, how it grows and anatomy of it and how all these different forces come together, whether it's those DJs in the South, uh, the religious leaders, like you're talking about someone growing up within a, a church um, or within a faith that way and how that is being challenged. And then the fallout from it, you know, the images of burning cultural material is always frightening, right? And so we can draw a lot of, a lot of parallels from that. But I do think that the way that the story is told and your approach to it is certainly, certainly something that, that might be told visually like that. You know, well, how does someone use the Beatles as a way to make their way through life? Like we saw with, you know, the Zemeckis, I want to hold your hand and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, coincidentally, David, my daughter, Caroline, who was brought up on the Beatles, is a screenwriter slash director. So if there's anybody who'd love to, I'm sure Caroline would love to adapt uh, the story. And she basically grew up when she was in the womb, she, there, were, there was Beatles stuff on all the time. And one of the things that we did just before she was born is my wife and I watched the Paul McCartney Unplugged episode and she was right there listening to all that stuff and as she grew up she came to just love the Beatles she loved especially believe it or not more than help much more than a hard day's night and even today we're always quoting the movie to each other you know go to the window and you know what well, what's this glasses <laughs> you know I mean there every time there's a situation we can come up with something and just like I danced with my mother to uh, in my life at my wedding in, in 1986, my daughter surprised me. Well, maybe not a surprise by telling me that that's the song we're going to dance to at her wedding. So, you know, I, 
it, it, it's a continuum, like you said. Yeah, that's great. Mark, I know you wanted to mm -hmm. chime in. What did you well, want to say? Well, uh, you know, I, 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 one of the things I, one of the, I just want to do a shout out because I, I, may, I may not get another chance. But last night I was astounded. You know, one of the reasons that the Beatles are, are still in, on everyone's mind is both Ringo and Paul are creating new music and, and good new music. And last night I looked on my phone and here Ringo has a new song out. Uh, it's, right. it's written by a Diane Warren, but it's terrific. It's called Here's to the Nights. I listened to it about four times. So I just wanted to, to give a shout out to Ringo because, you know, it's, it's like, you know, all-star sing-along. I mean, he's got, everybody explore it and go on and listen to it. And I'm sure, Chachi, you'll be featuring it on your show. Yes, I but, will. I heard it last night too. And there's a bevy of artists and there's one in particular that really blew my mind. And of course I forget who it was, but nonetheless, good for Ringo. And he, I think he's following Paul's cue in putting it out in colored vinyl and you know, McCartney three, we are a day away from that being released. And you know, that was that they're putting it out in all different versions of colored vinyl. I, I'm sure you guys have seen it, but I, I thought I'd do something novel. I got the black vinyl. Uh, uh. That will probably be the <laughs> rarest because everyone's buying the colored <laughs> vinyl. But, but I, I was just going to say, the only thing I was going to add was that, you know, that in terms of the historical perception of the Beatles, and, and, and I think it's a great idea, Paul. I hope that you will consider some kind of a treatment of it because I think it's a very interesting idea that David's raised. And, you know, there, there have been some good treatments, and there's been some other things that people have said, well, I didn't quite hit the mark. Uh, by the way, Robert Zemeckis lives here in Santa Barbara. So <laughs> if you have, I, I, I'd be glad to, to shoot a letter uh, to him. He's got a production studio just south of where I live. That's where he, he's done most of his work. But, you know, uh, one of the chapters of my book, Chachi, just very briefly, is it's on the White Album Conference that was in 2018 at Monmouth University. And I don't know if, David, if you were there or Ch Chachi, but yeah, I, I, I had a great time there. And one of the um, sessions was actually on, it, it was a, a Sunday morning session on and kind of the the some of the background of, of historical background context of what was happening when the Beatles were writing their writing their material and the French student uprising in 1968 may have led Lenin to write the song revolution and then there was some discussion and we were talking about the racial issue in in the south that in, in 66 was it 66 Chachi is that is that is that the right year mm -hmm. of, the, of the concert down there yep. and the the song Blackbird and it was discussed in some detail because, you know, Mel Evans, before he died, uh, said, well, no, it was just, it was just Paul. He was, he was, he was listening to a blackbird singing in Rishikesh. And, and of course, Paul, Paul has a social justice underlay to the song. And, and I think that probably it's probably, you know, maybe inspiration and, and songwriting. And uh, so I think that maybe both of them were right. But that's, that's what I was just going to add is that, 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 that there have been some really interesting historical uh, connections to the Beatles' work in that era. Well, in your book, you talk about a decision that the Beatles made. Now, actually, I'm going to ask you something else besides that. You talked about John and Paul singing in parallel thirds. Ah, uh, yeah. Please explain that to our, view, our listeners who might not know what that is. Ah, uh, well, that, you know, the Beatles, to me, you know, Beatles' early material is, 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 is kind of my sweet spot. Uh, just because, you know, all of the wonderful harmonies that uh, were created. And that, that to me is what really drives the, the, the kind of the energy that you hear in, 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 in Beatles songs, especially the early, the early stuff. And, and parallel thirds were, is a, a term that describes singing a third above or below the melody line. So you, you create harmony by singing a third Above, Har McCartney usually had the top top end, and and Lennon sang the sang the bottom end, and of course the that that era, especially in in England, was driven by very strong melodies, and 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 so the Beatles had that kind of background. They were great melodists, and uh, but they they took the 
close harmony of the Everly Brothers, who sang everything in parallel thirds <laughs> and, they, and, and varied it and had kind of a Motown feel. Sometimes it would be echoed, you know, like the uh, girl groups did in, you know, in the, 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 the Marvelettes and the, and the Shirelles and, 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 and all that, that, that Motown sound that the Beatles loved. They, they, so they had a, a, a Motown kind of a vibe to it. They kind of put that in their, their songs with a repeat and echo like, you know, do you want to know a secret and some of those songs. And, and, and they sang harmony in what I described as parallel thirds. And to me, that's the magic and the beauty of the Beatles music. You know, one of the most complicated songs that I think the early years and what made me come to this conclusion is many years ago, a listener of my show sent me a report that she had done for school. It was about six pages exploring how complicated the song If I Fell was in singing Paul and John. It was, and I have it in the back here and I'm going to reread it and refresh my memory, but that song, when you listen to it, it's a complicated song to sing. Certainly is, and uh, that's a really, really good, uh, a good one to to analyze. I, I, I'm going to listen to that again myself because I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song. I I think that if I fell may have been one of the featured songs that was a favorite Beatles song, and they met this man of Leonard Bernstein. And he used to do in the 60s and 70s that program on CBS, Concerts for Young People. And he would break down classical music and everything. But he, he, I believe it was If I Fell that he also looked at. And I remember, you know, in some of the, in some of the tales, he was one of the folks along with one of his children that got to meet the Beatles, I think, on their first trip to the U.S., possibly after, or, or they may have attended the Carnegie Hall concert. But that's a favorite of, 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 of Leonard Bernstein who actually had a, a summer home in the town I live in. His, his, there's a framed photo of him in our public library in Sharon. Speaking of towns in Massachusetts, Chachi, this leapt out at me in, in uh, Mark's book. His photo with Pete Best. Did you notice that Pete is wearing a t-shirt that says Rockland, Massachusetts? And maybe it's because it's the town that called Rockland, you know, Rockland. And it actually has like a clipper ship on it, but it's Rockland, Massachusetts. And I'm wondering where he might have gotten that. Is, was there like a club in Rockland, Chachi, that, that Pete played at with his band? See that? It says Rockland, Massachusetts. It's kind of, I, it's, I, I saw that and I said, wait a minute, I've been to Rockland. <laughs> I don't recall. I saw him, I, int I introduced him at a show in, uh, I forget, Marlboro. but no, it wasn't Rockland. I, I, was, I, was at, I was at Marlboro, the Marlboro show. Marlboro, uh, but there was another ago. one where he was supposed to play outdoors, but then he ended up playing in the high school. Uh, but I go back many, many years with Pete, and uh, this was one of my earliest pictures with Pete Best. But what a gentleman, right, Mark? You you interviewed Aww. him, and he's a great guy. I think he's one of the unsung heroes who, I, I don't know about you guys, but if I was Pete Best and I was dumped from the Beatles, I'm not sure if I could walk the earth anymore. <laughs> you know, it took a lot to carry on. One of the greatest sure, sure. what it what ifs in, what ifs in history, at least musical history. You know what? You know? I, I have a follow up. Uh, I have a follow up question for Mark uh, Chachi uh, along yeah. the sort of Beatle drummer line. Now, in in Mark's book, you know, I mean, part of when I was reading it, you know, Mark, to be honest, and looking at it, I thought, you know, I should have written this. We all have those moments, right? I should have written this, or I could also write something like it. I've been at a lot of Beatle talks and conventions. I wasn't at the Monmouth University, but Chachi and I uh, a few times have, uh, have uh, interviewed uh, Ken Womack, and, and I saw him give a lecture at Harvard. I brought some students to see him. And, you know, he's led a, a similar life in education. He comes from the field of literature, literary studies, cultural studies. He's now in administration, of course, there. But, you know, so I've met some of the folks at that sort of elite level of Beatle scholarship. And a lot of folks who have chronicled their experiences as fans and everything in between. So when I was looking at your book, I said, okay, I, I know a lot of this. I've walked some of the same streets in Liverpool, which is fantastic. I kind of thought that your travel log is like it's its own sort of Rick Steves episode. And he did go to Liverpool, and that's a great tour. He goes down to Albert Dock and the Beatles experience. But the way you do a little travel log of it is great. Uh, which I always suggest to my students if they get to study abroad. But I was also looking for things that I didn't know. And there are just some things that jump out that are beautiful. 
One is the interview with Andy White, okay? And so my question about the Andy White interview, similar to the Pete, is Andy must have gotten paid some royalties, whether it was obviously his work on, on the early albums or the singles or even later on anthology stuff, but he got paid beyond that session, I assume, correct? For his no. Beatle work? No. He did not. He did not, because that was his one and only session. He was played union wages of about 16 bucks American. So, you know, that's, that's, that's just the way it, 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 it worked back then when you were a, a session player. And I don't know what he signed, but of course, you know, he played on a Tom Jones big hits. He played on some Hermans and the Hermits hits. I mean, he had a discography, but I, I, I don't, I, I never have, and Chachi, you can jump in. I don't know that he actually was paid like Pete Best was paid on, he were six songs on the anthology where he made probably a million bucks uh, for the sales of that. I don't think Andy White got a penny past his union wages. Am I wrong, Chachi? I think you are correct, but I also seem to believe that Pete made many millions from the <laughs> I had heard what 10 to 11 million, and obviously, you know, Neil Aspinall was involved in that. And we know right. the connection to Neil yeah. and Pete and Mona Best and Rogue Best. So, you know, Pete waited a long time, and you hear the stories. He was a baker, he worked at the post office while the Beatles were just making millions but pete is a great man and i love that you included pete in your book now paul in your research for your book with the 1966 memphis show i don't know how much research you did into it and i don't recall if it's in the book but there was a counter concert going on at the same night right uh, right yeah. down the street with that famed rock group that we all grew up with playing in the half times of the Super Bowl, up with people. Right? Yeah. Well, what they decided was that the church leaders in town decided that to counteract the Beatles concert on August the 19th, there was an afternoon and an evening concert. But to counteract the evening concert, they were going to have a big religious revival type deal going on. They had speakers coming in. All the kids who showed up were nice and neat and, you know, shirts and ties. And uh, they had a, they did have a singing group there. And yet it was funny the, the the singing group that was doing their numbers tried to be a little quote hip with the kids and they got criticized by the, by the religious leaders who had, were running the thing because they thought they had gone a little bit too over the top with their gyrations. So yeah, th they really did try to counteract the Beatles that night and they did have a decent crowd, but nothing like at the Mid-South Coliseum. No, and I just want to bring up this one thing in reference to Andy White. The Smithereens just released a 45. Look at that great cover. Love me doing P.S. I love you, but look up close underneath the Smithereens and you see that Andy White played <laughs> on that song, on those two songs. So good for Andy White. And I don't see him as being, I don't think he was at many conventions cashing in on his name which he could have you know he could have gone done that for the rest of his life you know absolutely being absolutely. at uh, festivals and because everyone would love to meet andy white so there he is on a latest smithereens replication of love me do and p.s <laughs> i love you I, I would think it would be interesting to put andy white pete best and jimmy nickel in a room and just it, let them talk to each other for a few hours and just record the whole thing. And, and here's another guy, Jimmy Nickel, never really, you know, took advantage of those Beatle fests. He would be paid handsomely, probably more than what he made with the Beatles. You know, he got a watch, right, Professor? As he, as they or, any, or, or any, any number of the, as, you know, Chachi will make fun of me when I reference Ian McDonald's book, which I do consider the sort of song-by-song song Bible, any of the number what were termed uncredited musicians that that were the the uh, the indian musicians who worked on a lot of those songs just termed uncredited you know if you weren't if 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 you weren't ravi shankar then you were just sort of part of the the circle in london which probably was was even at that time fairly vast of course with the in the anglo-indian community but yeah have all of those people who were associated with with the beatles and also, you know, as we know, we, we track the, the Beatle offspring and, and Mark touches on that uh, 
quite a bit. Chachi, I want to go to one other factoid or fact that jumped Please. out at me. One thing I had never known because I will always talk about this in class as part of the Beatle confidence or being able to sort of dictate things on their own terms before they really had established the right to do so. And that, of course, is the famous resistance to having how do you do it shoved down their throats, right? The Mitch Murray song and to sort of resist it. But what I hadn't known, and this is a great tale that Mark has, is when the Beatles said, no, 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 we don't want to record that song, that Mitch Murray said, I don't want them recording it either. <laughs> that there was actually a mutual, without them knowing it, a mutual agreement that neither of them wanted a part of it, right? And then, of course, you know, that George Martin's great claim, finally, and Mitch Murray, that good old Jerry Marsden, Jerry and the Pacemakers, took it to uh, number one in England, and that's, and that's fine for them. But we always go through that moment of, you know, where do these guys get off refusing what the professional producer and that Tin Pan Alley songwriting industry would think, this is going to be a great pop hit, okay? And where do they get off saying, nope, nope, sorry, we're not, we're not doing it. It's not us, right? And that yeah. early moment is like, wow, you know, that takes a lot of balls, really. You know, I mean, they had established themselves a little bit with Love Me Do, but it, it didn't skyrocket because people hadn't caught up to that sound and that feel and that spirit yet. So, Mark, I thought that was just fantastic. I had never realized that he also didn't want them to record it. Well, it's true. And, Chachi, I, I learned in my research that the the Beatles publisher, uh, Ardmore and Beechwood, with, associated with Dick James, did not have the publishing right to Mitch Murray's song, How Do You Do It, that Martin was pushing on him. And they were not happy with having one of their songs not, you know, on the B-side of, let's say it would be P.S. I Love You or Love Me Do on the B-side if How Do You Do It was on the A-side. So not only did was that working, and it was working against George Martin's hope to have this big song, you know, be their, their this Mitch Murray song be their um first first single but it, it, it was like everything else in life and certainly in the music business things get complicated and and that's was in the Beatles favor but they really pushed hard and that to me was revolutionary to say hey we want to do our music we think our material is strong enough to establish us as songwriters and th that was their dream. That's what they wanted to be. You know, there was great. There were great songwriting teams out there at the time, but they wanted to to be right up there at the top of that pantheon. Yep, they were very self confident. They believed in themselves, and you know that could have went really badly for them back then. But George Martin saw through that because of their charisma, their humor their abilities as musicians playing like 1200 plus hours in Hamburg and Liverpool. And, and so they got to a point where they, and, and that never, they were always themselves, whether it was in a hard day's night or help or even let it be. Uh, and they just believed in their own convictions. And they believed really, in, they believed in really, Ringo too. And they believed yeah, in Ringo. What's really, exactly Paul. Exactly. What's really astounding about making that stance against how do you do it is it's barely a year, not even that, after this same producer is telling them, I don't want your drummer you just brought in because <laughs> I didn't like the last guy. I don't even want that guy on your first single. And now you're telling me you're not going to record this, this hit. Now, as, as Mark is alluding to in his research, you know, there's Womack goes through this chapter and verse, the whole battle between the publishers and all the influence that had and the personal animosities and the vengeance about how a song even gets in front of the Beatles to record. So yeah, Womack's first installment in his George Martin uh, biographies really goes through that whole Mitch Murray thing. It's, it's quite, a, quite a fascinating tale. Yeah, that, that, that one is really, really deep and thick, you know, about those, those the rivalries, right, with, the, with the, the, the producers and who had what hit and everything else. But yeah, it is quite a moment, Chachi, to make that stance really at a time when the performers and the recording artists were, were really just pawns that could be interchanged and used however the, uh, the companies wanted them to be used. And it, it did take that success, but also that pluck and, the, and maybe the attitude that a lot of them had was, we know 
they didn't know what would happen for years and years and years. But they assumed we, we have a limited shelf life. So what the hell do we have to lose? And I think that's where the Liverpool comes out, right? Let's just go for it because we may not be around that long anyway. And it did work out for them, obviously. It certainly did. And, uh, you know, the one thing that really caught my eye, Paul, when I first got your book, there was something that was on the back cover. And I was like, whoa, it piqued my, uh, my curiosity. And it led me to reading your book, Happiness is a Warm Gun, and it's aimed at the Fab Four. I mean, that's, that's a quote on the back of your, your book that really like, wow, what is this about? Well, you know, and this is chronicled and you could even see the YouTube videos when it was announced that they were going to come to Memphis and they were going to play the concerts. First of all, the the town fathers tried to get the thing canceled. This was all in the wake of the Jesus comments and the religious uproar and the book and the Beatle burnings and the, the boycotts and all that other stuff. But the KKK actually came out and said that they they might have some surprises in store for the Beatles during that evening concert. So I just took it a step further and, you know, and this is where the fiction comes in, but it was totally plausible that in 1966, three years after the president of the United States was shot in broad daylight in Dallas, Texas, that there could have been uh, a, a plot to harm them during this concert. There was no such things as metal detectors. The the police force that was guarding them was somewhat indifferent to them. Remember, this was the uh, same city in which Martin Luther King would be shot two years later. So so really what happens in the book is something that very well uh, could have happened and it would have been a tragedy because when that when that cherry bomb or firecracker or whatever you want to call it was thrown on stage when they were into their third song, which was If I Needed Someone, and that thing went off, all of them immediately froze for just a half second and looked at John because they thought, this is it, you know, and, you know, he just kind of gave them a look and kept on playing, and which says a lot for them because I think I would have had a a little bit of a physical problem at that at that point if I was on that stage. Um, so yeah, it 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 what there were figuratively and um, literally there could have been guns pointed at these guys and they knew it. And uh, I had John's sister Julia tell me that he was really really frightened of that of that concert. And once they got over that hurdle, you know, they were able to at least exhale for the rest of the American tour. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. And Mark, one of the things I liked about your book was you interviewed James McCartney, uh, Paul's son. And I love his albums. I have both of them here. And there's one particular song that I, and I'm looking it up. That's why you see me looking down. But your talk, conversation with James, it was a positive experience for you, right? Well, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, here I am, a local uh, music writer, and I go into this club, Soho. It's a sold-out show. There's a piano on stage with ba candles lit on it, and uh, about five guitars, acoustic guitars, probably alternately tuned, sitting on stage. And I, I, I had this opportunity I, to to go backstage and interview James McCartney, and and I, you know, so I, I. I I knock on the door and there he is with a cocktail in his hand, which is, which was startling to me. His tour manager there is there with him, and I, you know, kind of followed another interviewer in. I had a, I took some photographs of him too. I'm a photographer as well, and most of the the, the photographs in my book, Beatles related photographs, are are my own. And so the first thing I did was say, hey, I'd like to take some photos of you, James. And he said, hey, sure, no problem. There happened to be a, a, a solid wall behind him. And it was kind of reddish, which was interesting. So the book, the, so the, that, that provided a nice backdrop. So I got some nice pictures. He didn't smile really much. It was kind of a, you know, I don't know what kind of a look he was giving me, but because I hadn't talked with him yet. I, so I, I photographed him first. And then I was able to talk with him about, his his first album, which was I think was called New, wasn't it, uh, Chachi? Yes, and then it that's was, correct. And then and then Blackberry uh, Train was his second. Yeah. Well, this uh, one, there's a song on Close at Hand. It's hauntingly beautiful. It's called I Only Want to Be Alone. And I would I would tell all of our listeners 
and the panel, you should listen to it. And I played it on my show many times because I just love it. And he's been like the invisible, you know, sibling of a Beatle. You don't see much of James. True. And you wonder, you know, uh, what kind of a person he is, but he is a great musician. And he recently played in Harvard Square in Cambridge before COVID, which was great. But I've invited him on the show, but he has declined, I think, because he thinks I'm only going to talk about his dad. But that's, you know, a little bit maybe. But James McCartney, Close at Hand, is really, really a great album. It is. And, and you know, I, I tried to talk with him about his music like you would, Chachi, and, and having listened to it, luckily. And, and, of course, Blackberry Train hadn't come out at that time, but I had gone online and just some really strong material off this first album. And uh, especially one, there was one song, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was just terrific. And, you know, what did I say? I think it, looking at it was called Angel which I think is a great song off, off his first album. And, you know, I, I, I saved kind of the Beatles legacy question for my last question with him. And he, I, I said, how do you view the Beatles musical legacy? And I want to quote him because this is what he said. It's limitless, infinite, and spiritual. It's timeless. He motions with his hands. It's everything, isn't it? That's the line that stuck out to me. Yeah. yeah, wow. It's everything. It's everything, isn't it? The Beatles were classic, pure rock. They raised the bar, close quote. They certainly did. Well, <laughs> uh, unbelievable. A great book, both gentlemen. Fantastic books. Professor. I guess, I, Mark, Mark, I guess I'm, I'm curious when he said it's everything, isn't it? Because that's the line I wrote down. The reason why I wrote that line down is it echoed what I heard you get from Jay Ferguson, that the Beatles baked everything into their cake. <laughs> and then it yeah. made me think is, is, is their and everybody else's work too. But I was curious if James McCartney, when he said it's everything, isn't it? Did, did he say it with a smile or with a frown or something in between? I think it was kind of an expansive expression. You know, it was just him just extemporaneously saying, wow, I mean, this is just, this is, this is the world of music encompassed in a, in a, in a band from the 60s. I, 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 he, he was just kind of talking, I thought that was the most honest thing he said in his interview. And, you know, not, not that anything was dishonest, but it was the most spontaneous, let me put it that way. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, Gentlemen, thank you both. Professor, as we wrap up, any last questions for two guests? We had Mark, Mark Brickley, who's the author of Postcards from Liverpool, Beatles Moments and Memories, and Paul Ferrante with 30 Minutes in Memphis, a Beatles story. Not many, there's, there's only a handful of fact and fiction story. You know, Jude Kessler with her John Lennon Shivering Inside series. There's a gentleman in Florida who did St. John Lennon which was the story of John Lennon coming back to life, apparently, something to that effect. So we, we enjoyed both of you, gentlemen. Paul, any last words before we go? These, both of these books would make fantastic gifts for yourself or for any Beatle fan in your life. 30 Minutes to, in Memphis, a Beatle story, postcards from Liverpool. I'll allow each of our, our guests today to just have some final words, and, and hopefully you're doing okay out there during these COVID days. Hopefully that will be over soon and we can all get together. So, Paul, in closing, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for David. Thanks to David for bringing up an idea that I've been thinking right along. I'd love to see my, my film go, you know, go to the screen. I think that would be a, a dream beyond you know, imagining. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for this opportunity and the, the opportunity to talk about something we all love and is so much a part of our lives and always will be. We are so, so lucky to, uh, I know that I was lucky to grow up when I did and experience this and uh, to relive it through talks like this is just fantastic. So thank you. Well, Paul, any chance you're going to do, for, you know, besides a potential, you know, movie, cross our fingers, any further Beatle escapades that you'll be uh, participating in in the future? Or what do you think? Well, in, in my, my next T.J. Jackson book, which takes place in England, they're, they're, on, they're on assignment from the Queen to do a, a ghost, uh, 
a ghost investigation at the um, Tower of London. They do take a side trip to Liverpool because, as I said, one of the kids is such an aficionado, they can't pass it up. And they do the whole tour thing, and they end up at the Cavern Club. And he, he has a, an encounter with the spirit of one, I'm giving this away, but he has an encounter with the spirit of one John Lennon at the Cavern. And they actually, they actually have a nice little chat. So that's my favorite scene in the book so far. Well, you know, it could very well be true when the white piano plays on its own. You know, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. <laughs> My God, I would I would flip out. You know, the fact that that piano's playing in the middle of the night, and uh, you know, hey, it could be Yoko playing. You know, uh, but anyway, that's a bad joke. Mark, anything you'd like to say as before we say goodbye? <laughs> well, hey, I'm just looking forward to getting out there again. You know, I want to get out and, and I'd love to meet David and Paul and and Chachi, of course, and and our and, and your engineer and. I, I once drove a cab in Boston when I was much uh, younger, and and Great. so I, I got I got a good feel for Boston, and uh, you know, and and uh, you know, I, I I hope to get back to Liverpool to the big International Beatles Festival next year if it happens, and and of course the the New York City Beatles Fest for Beatles fans, and and in Chicago as well. So I, I miss I miss the Beatles friends that I've made. I hope to see you all soon. Well, that's great. You know, Professor, you know, Mark was driving a cab. What years were you driving a cab in Boston? Mark? That would have been 1979 and early 80. Wow. Imagine that. 1979. 536-5000, Boston cab. I think that was the number, David, right? <laughs> uh, I, I used to do what was, I don't know. I, I did the one that was the brown, the brown cab. Uh, very rarely. <laughs> we walked everywhere. We didn't have money for cabs. But if, if Mark can drive a cab in Boston, he can do anything, Chuck, because that's, that is not an easy gig. I'll just tell you just one little tiny little story. Please. Here, I used to park my car. I had an old Honda Civic that I drove across the country, and I parked it right near the, the uh, Checker Cab Company garage, which was right near the New England Conservatorium uh, School of Music. Yeah. Uh, and and, and Three times my car was broken into while I was driving my cab. <laughs> wait a minute. Ch wait a minute. Did he say three? That's it? Only three? You're wow. lucky. You're lucky. No, You're lucky. no. Yeah. I, didn't, no. I, didn't, I didn't fix the window after that. <laughs> Except for the fact that, you, Mark, you wouldn't recognize many of the streets now because uh, Boston has gotten a little bit hipper and we have, we have bike lanes. You know, so it's like you're in Copenhagen or, or Amsterdam. However, before that, the great thing about Boston, as you remember, Mark, is that it is equally inhospitable to drivers, to pedestrians, and bicyclists. So it's very, it's very egalitarian that way. It's horrible for all of them. So. Yes. <laughs> Mark, we're going to meet you at Pinocchio's Pizza in Harvard Square. Still there after all these years. <laughs> so anyway, maybe, thank you. Maybe right. I'll meet you guys for a sausage and peppers outside Fenway. All That's sausage right. Sausage King. But That's you know cool. what I didn't like, Paul? You know, the last time I got a sausage sandwich outside of Fenway, you know, I like the Italian spicy hot sausage, not the sweet. And I like it with onions and peppers. And so the last time I did it, I said to the guy, you know, give me one hot sausage, onions and peppers. So he gets the bread, gets a hot sauce, sprays it on the bread and puts a sweet sausage on it. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> that happened so long ago, but I've never forgotten it. And it's the last time I got one. But yeah. So, Paul, where are you located? I'm in Stratford, uh, Connecticut, most of the time and a little bit of the year down in uh, Vero Beach, Florida. But listen, once this loosens up up here and, and hopefully we, we get the vaccine and, and people start mingling again and getting out, I'd love to see you guys at these Beatle events and become a part of them. Now that I'm kind of, I have kind of an entree into the Beatle world. I'd love to just hang out with you guys and uh, talk more Beatles. Well, what we need to do is all three of us uh, sit in on a Professor Gallant class because he teaches a great, fantastic course. And it's always fun to sit in the back of the room and, and, and listen to the students interact. Because I think the greatest thing they love is they love the butcher cover amongst other things and they're freshmen some of them know about the beatles some of them don't so it's a fun class to be in okay I and it's a, it, when it's when it's really good it's, it's it's much less about me and and more about the students what they bring to the table so right yeah oh i'd love to have everybody in 
Yeah, and he brings in food too, so that always helps. Hey, love, love uh, so, to be there. I, 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 be your special guest anytime. So uh, I do want to just remind him. Yeah, Mark, so, uh, uh, my, my classroom, our, no, our, our school, Mark, is right, right in downtown Boston. We're, we're basically at the foot of where the State House is. So we're right on Tremont Street. So as you know, you're not going to be able to park, so take the tea. <laughs> yeah, it's up on Beacon Hill, right around there near the State House. Yeah. I'll, ta I'll, take, I'll take a cab. <laughs> there you go. Good idea. <laughs> Good idea. Well, those medallions aren't as valuable as they used to be, Mark. You know, now with Uber and everything. Right. <laughs> you know, so so, ladies and gentlemen, I'll remind you once again: our two authors, Mark Brickley, with postcards from Liverpool, Beatles moments and memories. Paul Ferrante with Thirty Minutes in Memphis, a Beatles story, also a future film. So, thank you both, gentlemen. Those books are fantastic gifts for a friend, family, the Beatle fan in your life, for Hanukkah, Christmas, or for yourself. So thank you both gentlemen. Professor Gallant, it's always a pleasure to see you. It's Get Back to the Beatles, produced by the Boston Podcast Network, and the owner, proprietor, the boss, the producer, our spiritual advisor, David Yaz. How was going, that, David? Keep going, keep going. There's a lot in there, I know, <laughs> trying to get it all. How are you doing? You okay? Yes, everything is great. Peace and love to you. Okay, peace and love, everybody. Please be safe. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. And hopefully we'll all be together in 2021. Have a good day, everybody. Bye-bye. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.